Morning, everyone, again. All right, we're getting into Genesis 3. Before we get there, though, I just want to make you aware of next week. I'm putting a lot of things on your calendar here, okay? Don't let me do that to you. But uh, here we go. We got one more. Next week, March 11th, after the service, we have the Mass Family Institute pre-lobby day training. So they're going to deal with certain cultural issues that we have going on right now. Inform us, make us aware. It's a nonpartisan group. Uh, they're not Democrats. They're not Republicans. They're just making us aware of issues that Christians would want to be aware of. Uh, so if you're interested in that, there's some flyers out there. Uh, it's also noted in your bulletin. I hope to see you there. I think it's going to be a great event. All right, Genesis 3. You guys there? All right, we've got a lot to get through this morning. Uh, Nick Kleppel is wondering if I can do it, so let's go. That classic cartoon, Calvin and Hobbes, a uh, great little cartoon strip. It captured the no-fault ethos of our culture in the 90s, and I think what has uh, bloomed more so today. It begins with the two walking around and Calvin musing, nothing I do is my fault. Now, Hobbes just scratches his head there, as you see, and Calvin continues, my family is dysfunctional and my parents won't empower me. Consequently, I'm not self-actualized. Then Calvin shuts his eyes and folds his arms in that classic poor me pose. My behavior is addictive functioning and a disease process of toxic codependency. I need holistic healing and wellness before I'll accept any responsibilities for my actions. Hobbes finally responds, one of us needs to stick his head in a bucket of ice water. The cartoon ends with Calvin walking on saying, I love the culture of victimhood. Well, that's not quite how it works in the real world, uh, in the universe that God created. As we move forward in Genesis this morning, we're going to read a dramatic dialogue that takes place between God and between Adam, Eve, and Satan who have fallen. And we're going to see in God's world that there is actually a thing called sin and there are consequences to sin and that there are certain effects that take root in the human heart when we have sinned. In this unglued world we live in, it's present, it's real, sin dwells in us, yet in the midst of the tragedy, you can also take great hope in knowing that there is a God who looks for you, who searches for you, and meets you with his grace. So you ready to hear about this? Genesis 3, verse 7. Uh, look there at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they know that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, if you just back up a little bit there at Genesis 2.25, you see that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So what happens between Genesis 2.25 and Genesis 3.7? Sin. You see, when they had taken and eaten of the fruit, like a drop of dye into a, a bucket of water, sin came in and it penetrated every sphere, sphere of their being. And there are certain effects that sin brings into our life. The first effect of sin we see in the story is shame. It's that feeling of guilt over something that you have done, that you've done wrong. It's inescapable. I mean, have you ever done something wrong and it just kind of weighs on you? It sticks with you? You feel exposed, embarrassed, uncertain, maybe even inadequate? 
Well, the, the, the feeling that you are experiencing there is this internal moral alarm system that God's given us. It's called your conscience. It's saying, this isn't good. This isn't how God wants you to live. It's been said that if the best of men had his innermost thoughts written on his forehead, he would never leave his house without wearing a hat. And I'd say for ladies, you'd probably grow your bangs down a little longer, wouldn't you? We also experience shame because the guilt of sin cannot be glossed over or easily erased. Adam and Eve, they find this out quickly and they become fashion designers, their own fig leaf fashion design company. But the problem is, is that fig leaves are a poor replacement for innocence. I mean, can you imagine this? A lot of good they'll do, uncomfortable, brittle. Uh, They last for a couple of days. I mean, can you try... Uh, can you imagine trying to get anything done in this? I mean, I'm feeling scratchy just thinking about it. It's a little silly when you think about it, but there's this serious point underneath it all. Sowing fig leaves represents their feeble attempt to cover up sin and guilt. A shamed conscience always craves some type of covering. We don't use fig leaves today, but other than that, nothing in this story has really changed. We use religion, money, sex, power, our humanitarian efforts to hide the guilt. We work hard. We go to church. We say hello to our neighbor down the street. We post perfect pictures on Facebook. And these things might work for a while, but ultimately... They don't take away that sense of shame that the human heart feels over being disconnected from God. So how do you deal with shame? Well, we'll get to that in a little bit. Let's look at another effect. The fig leaves don't cut it. So when Adam and Eve hear God calling out in the garden, they play a good old-fashioned game of hide and hope not to be found. Look there at verses 8 through 10. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among them, uh, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. How do you hide from God? (laughs) I mean, Remember that story, maybe you're familiar with this one, Jonah jumps on a boat, he's heading for Tarshish. I mean, how do you run away from God? How do you hide from God? Is there some place that you can go that is hidden from God's omniscient mind, his omnipresence? No. Remember what David said a couple of weeks ago, Psalm 139, 7 and 8? Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? You see, sin not only produces shame, it also produces irrational fear. Adam and Eve should have run to God. The moment they heard his footsteps in the garden should have been the moment that Adam ran out and fell on his face before God and said, you remember the tree that you told me not to eat from? Well, I wanted to be like you. I wanted all the power and I'd grown up in pride in my heart and I've done wrong. Have mercy on me. 
But something had turned, had twisted inside of his heart and his mind. I mean, I imagine before this moment that the most precious sound to the human ear was the footsteps of God in the garden. Better than the sound of birds singing, better than the wind rustling through the leaves, better even than the sound of his own beloved. But now, everything has become unglued within them. And the sound of God is dreadful. Have you ever felt like you need to hide from God? Maybe you've done something and you're just so ashamed of it and you're so afraid of how he's going to respond to you. You wonder if he's against you. He's generally this distant figure, but he's waiting for you to do something wrong and then he's going to swoop in and he's going to deal with you. He's going to zap you. Recently, I saw an episode of The Office where two of the leading figures, characters, Jim and Pam, are christening their little child. And if you've ever seen The Office, I mean, it's zany, right? Everything's over the top, off the wall. So you can just imagine when these characters get to church. However, one character's experience seems very real, deep, and anguished. It's the HR guy, Toby. Here's the doorway of the church. Toby's about to take a step and he just can't cross the threshold of the building. As you come to understand through other episodes, Toby entered into ministerial training but decided to leave that to chase after a girl and his marriage ended in heartache, it ended in letdown. And in the final moments of the episode, Toby is standing before the altar. He's looking up at the stained glass window, having a conversation with God, and he says, why do you always got to be so mean to me? This is the God of the office. This is the God that many people see in the world. I mean, sadly, this is a false narrative that Satan, our flesh, and the world have spun. It's evil propaganda. You get on God's bad side, and he will ensure that your life is miserable. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. He's harsh. He's overbearing. He's a judgmental God. But is that the actual portrayal of God's ways? Of God's character? Does God impulsively come like a whirlwind? Does he zap first and ask questions later? Well, Moses paints a much different picture to us. The first question attributed to God in the Bible is, where are you? When God asks a question in the Bible, he doesn't do it because he wants to gain information. He knows the answer. He's asking a question because he's a personal God. And essentially what he's saying to Adam is, Adam, you are lost. And I've come to find you. This is a picture of God's grace. I want you to see that all throughout this book of Genesis, God's grace is woven through the book. He is personal. The moment that everything becomes unglued, God shows up. When sin unglues everything, God's grace is what holds it together and prevents it from unraveling completely. Where do we see grace? We see grace in the fact that God came looking. Billy Sunday said that sinners can't find God for the same reason criminals can't find police. They aren't looking. 
But God comes looking. God exits his Sabbath rest. He had finished all of his work and he comes looking for the man and the woman who were created in his own image. Jesus tells us his purpose for coming. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. But why would God do such a thing? I mean, why wouldn't he just kind of erase it all and start all over again? Why would he engage with an evil world where there is pain? Well, as Augustine said so many years ago, God judged it better to bring good out of evil than to suffer no evil at all. Wow. That's the God of the Bible. He's not the God of the office. Look with me at verses 11 to 13. The text says, He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, you might notice that Adam is addressed first in this dialogue. He is considered most culpable, like we said in Romans 5. Sin came into the world through the sin of one man through Adam. He had disobeyed God's command. He didn't relay the information to Eve correctly. He didn't step in to his leadership responsibility and tell Satan to go running. But, uh, so God questions him. How does Adam respond to God's question? Well, he immediately takes responsibility, admits his fault, Lays himself down at the mercy of God, doesn't he? No. He moves from playing hide and seek to playing past the buck. He blames someone else. Disobedience leads to shame, which leads to fear, which leads to hiding, which leads to blaming others. Listen to who Adam blames. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So long marital bliss. <laughs> it's her fault, God. She made me do it. I'm just standing here minding my own business by, for crying out loud. She practically shoved the fruit into my mouth. And, and it's your fault too, God, because I was happy being all by myself, naming the animals, and you gave her to me. Genesis tells us that Adam went on to live for 930 years after this moment. Do you think this ever came up in an argument? <laughs> well, Eve isn't perfect either. She follows suit. The Lord says, what's this you have done? And Eve cries out, the devil made me do it. I mean, just think of this scene. Adam's pointing a finger this way. Eve's pointing a finger that way. And the serpent, if he has arms, which we have no idea, is just sitting there folding his arms and smiling smugly. Remember the words of Former President George W. Bush, it was perceptive of human nature. He recently said, too often we judge other groups by their worst examples while judging ourselves by our best intentions. Isn't that true? So who is to blame? Certainly not God. 
James 1.13 tells us, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. The biblical reality is this, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We cannot blame God, we can't blame others, we can't cry out and say, the devil made me do it. As my good friend Steve Dager likes to say, anytime that you point a finger at someone else, there's always three fingers pointing back at you. This is what the Bible's saying here. We're responsible for our sin. So what does God do with the the raucous bunch of sinners here? Well, he gives out verdicts. They've broken his commands. Judgment is what happens when God's word is broken. It is a direct response um, to an assault on his moral will. And you'll notice that any time that God gives out a verdict, there is a natural consequence tied in to his judgment. You know, people say all the time, oh, I better not say that or lightning will come down and zap me dead. You know, kind of like this overbearing God that uh, the, the, the judgment doesn't meet the crime, right? The penalty. But that's not how it works. It's more like this. If I steal, I could face the consequence of prison. Natural, right? If I keep bad company, I might be associated with them. If I habitually lie, I receive the consequence of a lot of people no longer trusting me. So on and so forth. So look there at verses 14 and 19. God speaks to Satan, Eve, and Adam, and he delivers these natural consequences for their attempted cosmic coup d'etat. We begin with Satan. He hears Adam speak, he hears Eve, but he doesn't let Satan's forked tongue utter a word. Verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. So notice Satan is the only one who is cursed in this sequence. A curse in the Bible is the opposite of a blessing. It means God's judgment. Many have wondered what that phrase, on your belly you shall go, does that mean that Satan kind of walked about on two legs, or was he on all fours, comparing around? Uh, We don't know. I mean, for crying out loud. The one thing that we do know is that eating dust is a sign of humiliation and total defeat in the Bible. So as we saw in Isaiah 14, Satan wanted to be like the Most High, but now his judgment is that he would suffer eternal humiliation. When you get to the latter part of Isaiah, when God restores all things, the serpent will still reside in perpetual degradation. Isaiah 65, 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now we took a good look at this verse over Christmas. Uh, The sermon was called The Promise of His Coming. So I'll direct you to that. Uh, We'll make just slight comment here. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. Uh, The readers of Genesis would not have read this and understood that this was 
pointing to Jesus, right? But God was prophetically pronouncing how his salvation would come about. There would be this ultimate showdown between Satan and Jesus. And at the cross, Satan would strike Jesus' heel, but Jesus crushed his head when he rose again on the third day. And then in the New Testament, as they look back to the cross, they say comment about this. In 1 John 3.8, the apostle John tells us, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason, right, the Son of God appeared was to what? Destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2.14 also tells us, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Now I marvel. Every time I read these verses, or this verse in Genesis. Have you ever questioned, does God care? Is God involved? Just think about this. Everything has become unglued. It was well within his rights to judge Adam and Eve. And in the middle, he inserts hope. He eventually, he essentially says to Adam and Eve, I'm not done with you. He says to Eve, look, I've got a very special, eternally special, cosmically special plan for your life through one of your lineage. I am going to glue everything back together again. Friends, that's hope. Right here. But the coming of new life would now involve pain. Because nothing is easy in this brave, new, unglued world that Adam and Eve have ushered in. Look at verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So Eve and her daughters are affected by a judgment that affects them in two very personal ways. One to do with their children, the other to do with their marriage. Both of these consequences bring pain into her world. Now you shouldn't think of verse 16 as just referring to labor. It's dealing with the totality of motherhood here. From conception to they leave the home and even beyond that, mothers experience pain with children. I've heard people say, well, we really ought to not bring children into this world anymore. I mean, think of all the devastation, the famine, the wars, the things that you hear about on the news that happen to children. This would be part of Eve's pain. But not only that, Eve would have to watch sin ravage those precious babies that she carried in her womb, that she fed at the breast and raised. Next week, we're going to take a look at the first murder in human history, Cain and Abel. And I'm sure Eve remembered that terrible day uh, when this uh, judgment was being pronounced as she held her lifeless son Abel's body in her arms and, and watched her other son be cast out of the area where they were living? And the same story plays out today. 
I've rarely had a conversation with a mother of adult children whose heart is not broken for one of her children. From poor decisions to walking away from Christ to seeing grandchildren that are not brought up in the Lord to seeing decisions that would affect on down the line. They toss, moms toss and turn at night for their children. They pray, they ask God how long. They cry out to him for help. In a similar vein, the marriage relationship will also be dissatisfying for Eve. The Lord says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. I mean, the plain meaning is that marriage in this new, unglued world is hard. It's really hard. Adam will exert power. Eve will want to control. Bickering, fighting, hurtful words. I know that I'm speaking to a lot of perfect people here this morning, but I can relate to this, or I should more honestly say Katie can relate to this. A woman was walking along the beach when she stumbled upon a genie's lamp. She picked it up, rubbed it, and the genie appeared. She was amazed. She asked if she got three wishes. He said, no, due to inflation, constant downsizing, and fierce global competition, I can only grant you one wish, so what will it be? Well, she immediately knew what she wanted, so she pulled out a map of the Middle East. Do you see this place right here? I want this place to have peace. Well, the genie just threw his arms in the air. He said, lady, these countries have been fighting for thousands of years. I'm good, but I'm not that good. Make another wish. So the woman thought for a minute and said, well, I've never been able to find the right man. You know, one that's considerate and fun, likes to cook and helps with house cleaning, is romantic, gets along with my family, doesn't watch sports all the time, is faithful. That's what I wish for. I want the perfect husband. The genie just let out a long sigh and said, can I see that map again? Verse 17, and to Adam he said, please, you have listened to the voice, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now I just want to note here that pain in verse 17 describing Adam's labor is the same pain used to describe Eve's pain, right? So this new unglued world would hit them at the core of their existence. Uh, For Adam, he would have to face thorns and thistles, rocky soil, nutrient deficiencies, insects and animals, famines and wars and conflicts, and all of those things that make work difficult. Work itself, being originally a gift from God, would no longer hold the same satisfaction that it did. Now notice there, that work itself is not a curse. You know, we love to throw that expression, thank God it's Friday around. Work can be hard, it can be boring, it can cause stress and anxiety, all consequences of the fall. 
But God made work, right? He loves it. He created it because it's good for the human soul, and most people desire to be productive. I remember when I was going um, to Moody in Chicago, I'd make the commute downtown, and I'd come across homeless people from time to time, and they would be holding up that sign that said, we'll work for food. Now, there were plenty of people that wanted a freebie out there, but there were also people that really wanted to do something productive to get a paycheck at the end of the day, to put food on the table, right? You ever met someone who has lost their job and they just start falling apart? Why? Well, if I had time in Genesis, I would have preached one more sermon and I would have called it Work, the Glue of Human Purpose. Work is the glue of human purpose. So what happens to purpose in this brave, new, unglued world? Life is hard, and then you die. Listen to what he says. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. But I want you to see something here. It can be easy to gloss over it. With both judgments, Adam and Eve, God is lacing consequences with uncomfortable grace. Nothing completely satisfies, right? Young girls may grow up dreaming of the perfect marriage, perfect kids, perfect home, perfect life. Young boys grow up dreaming of conquering the world, venturing out on their own, being productive, gaining a name and a reputation, yet both find that they come up a day late and a dollar short. Do you remember Solomon's experience? He fully invested his vitality of his life his vast intellect and riches into this world. And how did that turn out for him? Listen to his own words. Whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done in the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So is life beautiful, or is life hard, and then you die? It all depends on where you've placed God in your life. Without God, life is meaningless. It's hebel, it's little soap bubbles that just go pop. Those feelings of futility are God's way of driving you back to him. He's put this big kind of Cosmic sign over your sense of purpose, and he said, Look for me. I'm here. I'm present. Augustine praised God in retrospect for this uncomfortable grace, saying, Your goad was thrusting at my heart, giving me no peace until the eye of my soul could discern you without mistake. Maybe God is speaking to you today. Maybe he's been speaking to you. The question is, have you been listening? We'll look at one more point here this morning. Unglued, but not irreparable. Look there at verse 20. Adam makes a powerful, hope-filled statement. The word Eve means life. The text tells us he called her Eve. Do you hear the hope? 
despite their sin, despite the consequences, despite it all, Adam must have heard hope in God's pronouncement that a coming seed of Eve would crush the serpent's head. Now, I'm not saying he had it all figured out or that he knew who Jesus was. Maybe he did. I I doubt it. But what matters is that Adam heard the words of God and believed them. And this serves as a lesson to us. Sin has done its damaging work on every life in this room. I don't know about you. I wish there was a magic delete button where I could just highlight portions that I'm not proud of. Click, delete, gone. But I can't do that. And you can't do that. So how do we move forward? Well, one pastor gives a series of statements that he calls the first law of spiritual progress. And it's crucial that we understand these. I can't go back. I can't stay here. I must move forward. Adam could not go back and undo it, could he? You can't go back and undo what you've done. Now, we can sit here and moan and groan and complain and gripe and blame and daily wish that things were different, or we could face the music and say, God, I have sinned. I have done what is wrong in your sight. I'm not casting the blame outside of myself. I'm taking the blame, the ownership here. And I'm falling at your grace, God. I'm running after you and your purposes and your plans. I also want you to see two important aspects of God's grace dealing with Adam and Eve. The first deals with the covering of clothes. Remember the Fig Leaf Fashion Design Company doesn't cut it, does it? They couldn't take care of the shame that they had experienced. So the text tells us, look at verse 21, that God made for Adam and Eve and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. How do you make a garment of skin? Something must be sacrificed. Something must give up its life, must spill its blood. One commentator notes with the sentence given, God does for the couple what they cannot do for themselves. They can't deal with their shame, but God can, will, and does. And this points to a greater reality. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is a divine illustration pointing forward to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews tells us that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The animal can't do it. But when Christ had suffered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. Sitting down means complete. Sitting down means fully and finally. Uh, Sitting down means nothing more to do. In Christ, God says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. End of story. In Christ, there's no more need for fig leaves. He's dealt with every sin, past, present, future, fully, finally. He dealt with them at the cross. The writer of Hebrews says that now we can have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. What's the holy place? It's God's presence, right? We don't need to be afraid to approach the living God. 
And as Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, this is why we sing about amazing grace. But in order to bring this about, God would have to kick their hineys out of the garden. It tells us in verse 22 that they must go, what does the text say, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Kent Hughes explains the significance. Adam and Eve's bodies were alive, but they were dead. As residents of the garden, they could have eaten from the tree of life and perpetuated their bodily existence indefinitely. Thus, the garden would have become hell on earth, populated with the undying dead, forever living and forever dead. I mean, have you ever thought to yourself, I wish there was a fountain of youth, I wish there was some way that I could be immortal? Well, the Bible says, not like this. Not like this. You don't want to live an internal, unglued existence in an unglued world. God sent Adam and Eve out to spare them that existence. He sent them from Eden so that they, that he could work on this redemptive plan that he had set up in Christ. It's all heading somewhere. Remember how we talked about that desire, that inner desire to be at Eden again? Well, the Bible says that God has something better than Eden in store for you and me. He intends to bring heaven down to earth and to dwell eternally in a glorified new earth, better than the old earth. The Apostle John whets our appetite for it in Revelation. He tells us, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Did you hear that? No more death, no more sorrow. No more pain, no more sin. I could eternally live like that. And it is at this time when everything is made right again that then we will be permitted to take and eat from the tree of life. It tells us in Revelation 22, the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no lamp, uh, light of lamp of sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Does that sound good to you? I mean, that sounds unimaginably incredible to me. That's what we have to look forward to. And it can be all yours if you 
lay claim to God's provision for you. The death of his son, Jesus. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, how do I do that? The Bible tells us a very simple answer. Trust Jesus. Trust that his sacrifice was enough to cover your sin and shame. Trust that by coming to him, you are fully and finally forgiven. And if you're tired of feeling like an exile in this world that seems hostile, Jesus has these beautiful words for you. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened by this unglued world, and I will give you rest. Rest for your weary soul today by coming back to God. Rest for your soul tomorrow in a glorious eternity that God has planned for you. Come to Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me?